good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. It is so great to see everybody this morning, and if you're tuning in online, thanks so much for listening in. Before we invite our very special guest to the stage, I'd like to share just a couple of announcements. Please look out for communications for October Grand Rounds and Research Week. This will be during the week of October 3rd. We'll have an incredible lineup of speakers and leaders in their fields. Speakers will include, and not limited to, we'll have Dr. Alexandra Lansky from Yale. We'll also have Dr. Angela Taylor from University of Virginia, who will speak about the patient experience. And we'll also have Dr. Jane Ellis from Emory, who will be here to talk about maternal, the maternal cardiac program. Also importantly, please save the date for the Georgia Heart and Vascular Symposium. This will be June 21st through 22nd in 2024. Um, the target audience is physicians, fellows, everybody, Georgia Heart and beyond. Um, but we'll also be holding a concurring EMS session for EMS professionals as well. More details to come, so look out for that. Now, moving on for today, I'd like to announce that this program, Grand Rounds, is brought to you by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Patel will disclose his relationships in his presentation. To claim CME and nursing credit today, please take our survey. If you are viewing online, the link will be posted in the chat. If you're here in person, you'll receive the QR code at the end of the session, and you may grab that at the sign-in table. If you have a question for the presenter, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers, feel free to type questions into the chat, and we'll read them aloud. And now Dr. Samity will introduce our guest. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to see everyone. I'm glad some of the fellows made it in. Um, and obviously a lot of our staff, and I know a lot of the, the docs are online and other folks are gonna be joining. Well, um, I can just tell you that it's a unique and a distinct privilege this morning to introduce our grand round speakers. Dr. Manesh Patel um, is currently chief of the division of cardiology and co-director of the Duke Heart Center. His clinical interests include diagnostic and interventional coronary angiography, peripheral angiography and percutaneous intervention. He's involved in several clinical trials in, um, involving patients with vascular disease and cardiac imaging. He's a member of the ACC's task force of the appropriate use criteria. You all remember the appropriate use criteria that those criteria were chaired and led by Dr. Patel. Um, and he's also um, currently serves on the national boards of the Vascular Cures and the American Heart Association. Manesh's interest in therapies of atherothrombosis and coronary and peripheral art arteries has been highlighted in leading multiple clinical trials. And many of you read these clinical trials, they've shaped our practice. These include the Rocket AFib trial, the CRISP AMI, PROMISE, Euclid, and Define PCI. Um, that I know we all participated in. Um, he's also involved with the BEST CLI registry, which is funded by the um, NIH. Um, he's currently is the study chair for the Oceanic AFib and an 18,000 patient clinical trial involving AFib and factor um, 11 um, uh, comparison of asunodexin to apixaban. So a lot more, I think he's gonna cover some of that today. Um, but I also wanna share with you that uh, Manesh is uh, currently the, named as the Endowed Distinguished Richard Stack Professor at Duke. Um, he's uh, received the Career Mentoring Award for the Fellows um, at Duke and was named the uh, Ron Stoney Vascular Hero by Vascular Cures, a nonprofit organization aimed at improving vascular health. Um, in 2023, Dr. Patel was named the American Heart Association Physician of the Year. Um, he's published over 400 peer-reviewed articles in high-impact journals, as you can imagine, um, and he's currently uh, named in the top 1% of cited researchers um, over the last five years. 
So uh, Dr. Patel got his medical degree from Emory University in 1997, the same year as Dr. Jun An, uh, who actually joined us for dinner last night. And the year before, no, the year after Dr. Greg Giuliano, um, who had uh, graduated from Emory. So Greg was at dinner last night too. Um, Manesh then completed his residency at Duke in 2000 and remained there for cardiology and interventional and um, also has been absolutely instrumental in the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Um, so without further ado, I've asked Manesh not only to talk to us a little bit about one of his areas of interest, which are DOACs and the new factor um, 11 antithrombotic therapies, but also to share with us what's coming down the pike in kind of heart vascular clinical care. So Manesh, thank you. Wow, that's a, um, I'm gonna ask for that tape so I can send it to my mom, because that's a really amazing introduction. I appreciate it, it's more than probably needed, but it's really an honor to be here. Uh, I grew up in, in large part Statesboro in Savannah, Georgia. That's what you should probably share it. And I was a, uh, I have a strong feeling and love for Georgia and the football teams and all of the culture. And I enjoy being here. So I really appreciate it. Georgia Heart's really making a difference to the communities. I think today what I wanna do is talk a little bit about DOACs and then spend as heavy said, a few minutes talking about how do we make our communities healthier? Where's cardiovascular care going? These are my disclosures. You heard a lot about some of the professional ones. I'll just highlight some of the research and advisory stuff uh, with a, both the National Heart, Lung and Blood, but a variety of pharmaceutical companies that make anticoagulants. So it's important to remember that. Maybe my biggest disclosure is I'm an interventional cardiologist. So I think about things as an interventional cardiologist. And then I work with people that I think are some of the best people to work with, which I know you all are thinking about too. I, I was just sitting there while you were introducing and saying, if you know, fellowship in 2000, 23 years later, if I knew now what I knew then, what would I tell our fellows? So I'll spend a little time thinking about that. These are our learning objectives. Um, before 2010, um, warfarin was the standard of care for people with um, coagulation needs. And so I'm gonna talk about the net benefit of warfarin and then what the NOACs or DOACs have done. I actually think the term NOACs, even though I use it some, it's probably not great if you think about it because it's not novel anymore. You know, it's non-vitamin K maybe. So direct acting oral anticoagulant is probably better. I wanna understand where they don't work and where the new therapies might work. And then, as I said, talk about how do we get our community healthier, better, where do we go with that? So let's start its grand rounds. Don't have a patient present here, but let's start with the patient case, talk about it and use it to have you think mentally about what you would do. This is actually similar to someone I just saw yesterday in clinic. I was telling them about some of the things that we can do around our efficiencies in clinic and thing. So this is 71 year old lady with AFib, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, diabetes. She has some peripheral neuropathy. Her family is concerned a little bit about her unsteadiness. She also has some pain in her legs during walking. You heard I do peripheral vascular disease and interventional. So she was sort of seeing us both for the AFib and the vascular disease. She denied any heart failure symptoms, but she's sort of been in chronic AFib with a heart rate in the 70s. And her estimated glomerular filtration rate or renal function or EGFR is 41 mils. She's on metformin. One could argue that's an older therapy these days. We'll come through that. Uh, amlodipine, atorvastatin, multivitamin. And the family in, are, are interested in determining if she could be on an oral anticoagulant. They're worried about her unsteadiness. So the, I think there's two key questions I wanna tackle in the first part of the talk is should we treat her and what and how should we treat her? There's a lot of evidence. You, I'm probably gonna present information you've seen before. If you've already seen the slides and you've seen the data, how do you put context to it? Hopefully you all will appreciate some of that and think about that. And then think about where we're going for our cardiovascular care for patients like her, which we see in clinic in 20 or 30 minutes. And we have to have a conversation about anticoagulation with her and her family and how to do it and what that means. Or does she need an ablation or does she need other electrophysiologic care? So for the first time in the last 50 years, over the last two years, the mortality and morbidity from cardiovascular disease has gone up. Many of you have heard that. The impacts of that, I think, are important. I'll start with atrial fibrillation at the end. I'll talk about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So this is from 2016, before the pandemic, before the more recent data, but nevertheless, that global pandemic of atrial fibrillation, to put it into context, it's believed somewhere between one in 12 to one in 15 people over 65 will have atrial fibrillation at some point. Over 80, it gets to about one in eight. The average lifespan in the United States is now getting into the high 70s for men, low 80s for women, which is good. That went down a few, six months to a year over the last few years. Worldwide, we know we could do better. Worldwide, the prevalence has increased. And actually, as you get out to 
<coughs> Asia, uh, Japan, places where people are living even longer, the incidence of atrial fibrillation goes up and their fear of stroke goes up, but also their fear of bleeding. So you saw her in clinic. And if you could measure one thing about her risk to try to determine what to do, I won't ask people to raise hands and things, but you could see she did do a CHADS-2 score, a CHADS-VASC, a HASBLED, a hemoglobin, a creatinine. You can do one thing, what would you do? And when I ask this to most audiences these days, most say CHADS-VASC, I think based on guidelines and things like that. And I just highlight for them that yeah, that's what the guidelines say, but it's important to remember all the trials used CHADS-2, they didn't use CHADS-VASC. How do we get to CHADS-VASC from CHADS-2? So a little bit of a historic, because it's now 10, 15 years ago, what is, what is it telling us about it? So when CHADS-2 was determined and was a score, it was actually determined from an observational database that Alan Goh and others did. And they found that heart failure, age, diabetes, hypertension, prior stroke increased your risk. Once we had effective therapies, we started looking for ways to get it to more people at higher risk. I'll tell you one thing I use. If I can think about one thing as a cardiologist in my patients with atrial fibrillation tell me about their risk, I often, and I showed it to you in my presentation, I often use renal function. Now, why do I think about renal function so importantly? One, most patients now I'm thinking about treating. I want to treat them. Second, their risk is determined by age. Okay, that's in the creatinine clearance formula. Uh, weight, well, that's probably something. Um, creatinine is a great measure for diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. Sex is in the formula. The only thing that's not in the formula is prior stroke. So as a conglomerate, it's actually a pretty good measure. Now, why wasn't in it not in CHADS-2 or CHADS-VAS? It's because those observational databases didn't have creatinine clearance. But I find it to be a really good risk predictor when I think about CHADS and CHADS-VAS. Anyway, here's what the guidelines would say. I think most of you are probably pretty familiar with this. If you have a mechanical heart valve, moderate to severe mitral stenosis, then you should get a vitamin K antagonist, warfarin. In our country, around the world, there are different options. The reason is, even now with DOACs, and we've studied with mechanical heart valves, we've tried others, we do not prevent stroke and systemic embolism. In fact, we lead to increased bleeding and increased stroke when we try some of these therapies. And an interesting question of why does it lead to increased bleeding and increased stroke? We'll come back to that. Those that don't have that, based on their CHADS VASC now, according to our recommendations, are to get either anticoagulation, greater than two, they're supposed to be evaluated for it. And there's a preference for the NOAX, we'll go through the data for that, versus those that aren't candidates for NOAX or vitamin K antagonists, then there's a 2B recommendation for a left atrial appendage occlusion device. We can come back to where the evidence for those are. And then for those that actually are younger that have a zero or one, there's a conversation about should you be anticoagulated. So I showed you a 71-year-old person. I actually also had a 48-year-old person in clinic yesterday with intermittent paroxysmal atrial fibrillation on, on metoprolol, not on anticoagulant, now having a few more episodes. How long is long enough? Do you ablate that patient? Do you talk about anticoagulation? We can talk about that in the question answer. Here's a key question in the field as we think about new therapies. Having studied some of the older drugs at our institution, we studied both rivaroxaban and apixaban. So one of the questions that always happened, we were firewalled. We didn't know what the other teams were doing, but it's an interesting question now. Are they this, in your mind, are all the DOACs the same in terms of efficacy, yes or no? Is the bleeding associated with the drug or the patient? And then how do you choose your therapy? Now I ask this so provocatively because we've all got a, there's so much data in life that you figure out a few therapies you know how to use and you use them a lot. So you look at the evidence, you try to use them in your patients and you start to learn. So let me take a step back and say warfarin was really good. I used to call it the Muhammad Ali. It was 50 and 0. In 50 trials, it had been undefeated until these drugs came. And we forget that. Like nobody really likes in general using warfarin, but it was really effective when it first came on. You guys may know the story of its discovery by a, a person named Carl Paul Link. Oh, I think it found some sort of a threat. So I should probably close that. Um, so you can see these are trials of warfarin versus um, placebo and atrial fibrillation. This was published in 2007 by Bob Hart. These are smaller studies, six trials though. And you can see the numbers of patients enrolled because at that time we were looking for ways to anticoagulate these patients. This drug was actually found when these cattle were eating sweet clover and they had a hemorrhagic issue and that actually the vitamin K antagonist was identified by Carl Paul Link at a research institute in Wisconsin. And that's why it's the Wisconsin Research Institute drug. And that's why warfarin is the name of it. This, this drug was used in, in, in these patients, totaling about you know, 2,000 patients, and showed a 64% reduction, reduction in stroke. 
few things you can do for patients to reduce their stroke risk by 64%. So really hard to say patients with atrial fibrillation shouldn't get anticoagulant. And a lot of people worry about bleeding versus anticoagulation. This is from a Swedish registry. If you look at Chad's VASC score on the left and the right, I apologize if the slide's a little blurry on the screen. As the Chad's VASC score goes up, your chance of stroke and thrombotic embolism goes up. And you can see your chance of bleeding goes up. But actually, the chance of stroke is much higher than the chance of bleeding as your Chad's vascular score. We spend a lot of time in clinic talking to patients about bleeding. And I'm going to tell you bleeding is very important because a lot of patients are stopping drug because of it. But you can see there's a fairly significant increase in your stroke risk, and that stroke risk is reduced. A lot has been talked about for these um, measures called HASBLED. Some of you may have heard of these. In fact, the guidelines early on trying to help doctors make a decision with patients about risk and benefit of giving somebody a blood thinner said, hey, shouldn't you look at their stroke risk or their clotting risk and then look at their bleeding risk and weigh the decision? That's not unreasonable. But what I often say, and I sort of caused the guidelines some issues when I was doing it, I said, we did a trial where we gave all the patients these therapies, no matter what their bleeding risk was, this was their stroke risk. And here's what the data looked like. So what did the data look like when we did these trials? So warfarin, very effective versus placebo, six trials, 2,900 patients from 1989 to 1993. And then from the 80s to 2010, about 20 years, several studies were done. Unfortunately, patients were taking warfarin. And then we started doing these newer therapies, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, apixaban, factor 10 inhibitors in the coagulation cascade. When we went to medical school, we learned it a day. We didn't really want to spend a lot more time on it. I'll go back over it a little bit, but not deeply. The importance of anticoagulation though, is you can imagine your body has hemostasis. It's constantly clotting or trying to avoid bleeding, right? And so it's doing these two things where it's going to make sure that you're naturally not leading to disease states. However, when you have atrial fibrillation, because of stasis and other things, you lead to the stroke risk. So from 2009 to 2013, we randomized 71,000 patients to these therapies. And Christian Ruff did a meta-analysis that I'll now show you the, the findings of. This is in general how the drugs looked when you compared them to stroke or systemic embolism. I'll go through the differences in the trials in a second. So it looks like the Bigotran, a direct thrombin inhibitor, actually reduced ischemic stroke a little bit more than rivaroxaban, apixaban, and doxaban, remembering that those drugs are 10A inhibitors. But combined, there looks to be at least some effect on stroke and systemic embolism. And that seems to be mostly driven by hemorrhagic stroke, that these patients, once they would have a stroke or if they were at risk, they would bleed into their brain. And if you talk to our 71-year-old lady who's a little unsteady, the families are very concerned that she might fall, hit her head, have a bleeding episode. When anticoagulating her makes sense that that could cause a problem. With warfarin, the biggest risk was that patient would bleed into their brain. In fact, if you look across all three of these trials, and even a doxaban, I don't have that on the slide, that looks to be powerful and true. Less so on ischemic stroke, right? Clotting strokes, there was some effect maybe for the 10As, rivaroxaban or pixaban, but much more of effect for the 150 of dabigatran. Now, I don't think that's thought broadly in the groups. We forget that some, but it's thought it's important to recognize most of these therapies took high-risk patients and actually reduced the risk of stroke, some, but really reduced the risk of bleeding in their brain. And then, so you can see sort of ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, MIs on the right side of one, but sort of neutral. And then when you make people not bleed in their brain or not have big bleeding events, you reduce their all-cause mortality across all the therapies. How about bleeding? I talked to you about Stroke, what about major bleeding? This looks at all the major bleeding criteria. And here, a lot of, I think people have um, rightly so said, well, it seems that in at least the Pixaban Aristotle trial, there was less bleeding, although engage AF with a dose, looks like less bleeding. Population's different, we'll go into it. But in overall, similar, if not less bleeding with these agents. Um, so important to think about what does that mean? And what kind of bleeding matters to patients? So intracranial bleeding or fatal bleeding was reduced by all the drugs significantly, again, in the brain. But GI bleeding with the 10 A's outside of a Pixaban looked like, again, equal if not a little higher. So either there's a drug effect or it's a population issue or something else, right? Importantly, what I would say in this regard here is that these data would say to us that people live longer, bleed less into the brain, and for elderly patients, the highest risk patients where you're worried about bleeding, all of the drugs reduce fatal bleeding and you have to think about how the drugs did in those patients. So this is from the Riveroxaban rocket AF trial where I looked at. 
the oldest patients over 75 seem to get bigger benefit than the patients under 75. Now on this slide, you'll see all-cause mortality, non-hemorrhagic stroke, life-threatening bleeding. If I looked at all of the things that sort of put a patient over 75 at risk, they seem to favor taking a DOAC, in this case, rivaroxaban, and it seems to favor it fairly significantly. So I think, at least in my mind, we're often looking in, in clinic, and think about it in clinic, most of the time spent patients are trying to have less therapy. We don't want drugs, most of us. And so they want to have this really clearly defined for them. And as they age and the family cares for patients or they're trying to stay independent, this becomes an important one. But not everybody is not just trying to live longer, they're trying to live longer without meaningful limitations to their life. So I would conclude from the 70 some thousand patients that all of the new drugs cause less stroke predominantly from less hemorrhagic stroke. There's a trend towards less bleeding, definitely less fatal bleeding. All of the drugs cause less fatal bleeding, but there's some signals for mucosal or GI bleed. And there's overall trends towards reduced mortality. So I told you that it affects somewhere in the range of 40 to 50 million people in the US and probably affects hundreds of millions of people worldwide. It's a therapy that probably, if we instituted, would make people live longer, but certainly avoid stroke and hemorrhage in their brain. Of course, new drugs cost money and we have to work into getting patients to therapy, but how do we use them and when should we use them? So I'll just talk about age as a measure of vulnerability. I talked about how our patients are getting older in cardiovascular disease. We have patients that are younger, but a majority of our patients are over 65. Majority of our patients need some of these therapies. So I talked about renal function as a measure. This gets back to that measure. When we got done with Rocket, John Piccini worked on it with me. He said, let's do a model to say what predicts the patients. Because we just done the 14,000 patient randomized trial in AFib. So what predicts having a stroke? Because can we get better than CHADS too? And in fact, when we did this, we showed that the second largest predictor after a prior stroke or TIA was your creatinine clearance. So, and if you look below, blood pressure, heart rate, sex, diabetes, hypertension, all that stuff probably links back into creatinine clearance. Age is almost always at the top of these lists. Here it's lower than one because it's being represented by some of those other things like creatinine clearance higher up. In fact, we thought we were being pretty clever. We came up with this sort of graft where we said, if you've, at the bottom, the very bottom is no stroke and normal renal function. The very top is you had a prior stroke and you have bad renal function. And then in between, you can say whether you had a prior stroke or you have poor renal function, they go together. So we actually had this score. We thought we did rock it. We're going to be funny. We're going to get a good score. It's called R2 Chats 2. We're going to have people think about renal function. We'll have like R2D2 pictures. It'll be really fun. It never took off. And the reason it didn't take off, I think in part, is one, it didn't get into guidelines, which is fine. The second is the dosing controversy about renal function. How do you dose these drugs and renal function? So I'm going to get back to that because I think it's a big unmet need for our patients that age and have worsening renal function. I also think it's a place that factor 11 and some of the new therapies will play a role. So what did RELY do? If you think about the clinical trials, I'll go through all four just to make sure everybody's briefly on the same page. When we started the study we were doing with Rivaroxaban, we were interested to see that the, the team in Canada that was doing the study said, we're going to randomize patients to warfarin or dabigatran, 110 milligram dose or 150 milligram dose. And we're gonna randomize them, but it's gonna be open label, meaning you know if you get warfarin or not. Remembering doing a blinded study with somebody on warfarin means they get two tablets or two bottles, they get a finger stick. The finger stick is a barcode. The barcode goes somewhere, it's a real or sham INR. There's a real or sham adjustment in warfarin. It's a very complex study to do if you're trying to blind warfarin. So this was an open label trial. And actually when they were done, we weren't sure regulators were gonna do it, but when they were done, do you remember the findings? Impressive. I remember sitting in the audience and saying, warfarin's been undefeated. These guys just did a study. These men and women did a study that showed that 150 milligrams of dipigatran reduces stroke with similar rates of bleeding to warfarin. And the 110 milligram dose has the same rate of stroke as warfarin, but reduces bleeding. I thought, if I was designing a study, I would have wanted those results. I'm giving doctors and patients a choice. You get to reduce stroke at the same rate of bleeding as warfarin, or you get less bleeding, but the same rate of stroke, like pretty powerful. And the 150 dose leads to less ICH. So this is like a very powerful finding. The reason I bring that up is because you all probably know that the 110 dose wasn't approved in the United States. Now, why was the 110 dose not approved in the United States? I'll come back to that. But Think about what's going on with the FDA. And then I thought at that time, and I'll come back to it, what did I learn? 
they excluded patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30. And when we asked about anticoagulation options and what should we do, the FDA said, why did the FDA approve the higher but not the lower dose of bigotry? They actually wrote an editorial in the New England Journal in which they say, for patients with a creatinine clearance of 50 to 30, 75 milligrams twice daily is what we choose based on PK data from seven patients with a creatinine clearance of 10 to 30. Now, I was dumbfounded. I thought, wait, we have an 18,000 patient randomized trial with 6,000 patients randomized to the 110 dose, but you're going to pick the 75 milligram dose because you were worried about the renal function issue and you're worried about the difference between 110 and 150. What was the FDA really saying? Do you know? They also said no trials have specifically targeted creatinine clearance less than 30. And for patients in whom there's an exposure with the six-fold increase, we're going to base our data on PKPD model. So I, as I said, it's, I guess it's science, but I was dumbfounded. What was I dumbfounded about? I think that what the FDA was saying is we don't trust the prescribing physicians. If we give them two choices, a 150 dose that reduces stroke and a 110 dose that reduces bleeding, they will predominantly choose the 110 dose. They will not reduce stroke. They will have a lot of conversations. They may affect bleeding, but we're worried that that dose doesn't have a meaningful effect. We could argue that, but they didn't trust that. We'll come back to that. How about rivaroxaban? Rivaroxaban, as you all may know, gives a 15 milligram dose. We did a lot of things right. We did some things wrong in this trial. I'll tell you the thing we did right was up front. We said, if your creatinine clearance was less than 50, less than 50, then you could get the 15 milligram dose. And you can see how that it, it performs similar to the overall trial. What you also see is that the patient's risk of stroke was 2.7, pretty high on warfarin. And those that started on uh, 20 and the renal function got worse, they seem to have the same sort of benefit here in an analysis by Dr. Puccini. So those even quote unquote that were overdosed seem to do okay with regards to bleeding and stroke reduction. How about Aristotle or Pixaban? Five milligrams twice daily, 2.5 milligrams selected for, and you might remember they had this ABC criteria, right? Age, body weight, creatinine. Now, when I asked Chris Granger, why did you guys do that instead of just getting the creatinine clearance? It was to try to enroll quickly, right? Because you knew their age, their body weight, you might have their creatinine clearance. Not everywhere in the world did a creatinine clearance calculation, although the calculation uses age, body weight, creatinine, and obviously um, sex. So you had to have two out of three to get 2.5 milligrams of the aerosol dose, a very effective trial that you saw reduced stroke, reduced bleeding. So what dose and drug is best studied for patients with renal dysfunction today before we get to factor 11? This is the continuous, as you can see, this is from uh, Apixaban. As your creatinine clearance goes from 100 to, uh, to, to 30, both your bleeding rate and your stroke rate goes up, but actually your stroke rate again goes up much higher than your bleeding. <laughs> Why did I go through all of that? Because I think these are important data. Let me just show you that in Rocket AF, for people with a creatinine clearance less than 50, the dose of 15 milligrams was used in 20% of the patients. In Engage, that lower dose was used in 19% of the patients. And obviously in Rely, we can talk about the 110 for 150. But this thing I don't think most people know. 2.5 milligrams of apixaban was only used in 428 randomized patients. Patients with renal dysfunction, only 149 patients out of 18,000 in Aristotle got 2.5 milligrams. So I would say there's a very effective dose of apixaban. It's five milligrams BID. We actually don't know what 2.5 milligrams BID does. That's a shocking statement, I, I suspect, because on your wards, you'll find somewhere between 15 and 20% of patients are getting 2.5 milligrams BID of apixaban. Yet, Randomized data would say, I'm not sure what it does because I, I have less than 500 patients and less than 200 that ever got the drug at that dose. And why do I say this about the FDA? Remember I said the FDA didn't trust us? So here's data now eight years ago, but about five years after the drugs were on the market. And I showed the United States the use of the lower dose. So first of all, look at the Bigatran, 110, 150. Predominantly across the world, everybody chose 110. So the FDA might've been right. They might've said doctors and patients are bleeding averse. They're not trying to reduce stroke. They're not having the conversation they're trying. And this isn't just true for anticoagulants. My patient in clinic, I want to put them on a statin. I know 80 milligrams of atorvastatins to study dose. It's really hard to get them to 80, right? They want to start at 20 or 10. And we're just arguing to get up to 80. How many patients are on 25 of carbidolol VID instead of 6.25 or 12 and a half? We're doing titration all the time because patients don't want to be on that dose. It's even clearer when you look at anticoagulation. Look at apixaban. In 2015, 25% of the patients in the United States, 39% in Australia or Spain were getting 
2.5 milligrams of apixaban for which there were 200 randomized patients at that lower renal function or 500 total. So I'm not suggesting you shouldn't use any or other drugs. You should use the drugs, use them as the prescribed dose. And that's sometimes complicated. And here's some of the risk factors that happen. So when we look in observation, non-randomized, I appreciate all the importance of non-randomized, but when then we go and look at patients that look similar and got a standard dose versus a reduced dose, with the Pixaban, we see that in fact, their stroke rate is higher and their bleeding rate is not. And in fact, for the other drugs, when we reduce uh, dose, we're not actually seeing bleeding less, we're just seeing a similar effect on stroke. So if a patient is a high bleeding risk, what should you do? Should you reduce the dose? You can reduce medications. The first thing you can do in our AFib patients is maybe stop the aspirin. If they've got chronic coronary disease now in randomized trials, we've shown that stopping the aspirin might have that patient do better. Stopping NSAIDs, doing other things. But don't generally reduce the dose unless they meet the criteria in the trial because they tend to be higher risk for stroke. And when you're reducing the dose, you may not be reducing bleeding as much as you think. And preferentially, there's a higher stroke rate in that patient. So. I spent the first 10 years after the trial trying to get people to use the therapy. Unfortunately, now we're using the next five to 10 years trying to get people to use it correctly. And that sounds simple, but it's part of the challenge of implementing therapies. So how do we actually do with these therapies in practice today? So we did a PCORI analysis of PCORnet. We will hope to work with you guys in some of these sort of database analyses across large health systems, whether it's with PCORnet or other systems. We looked across seven large health systems 244,000 patients in the United States who came in with an AFib diagnosis, mean age was 74, 42% were female, about four to 5% were non-white. And this is Midwest, West, South. So you could, you know, if we had more South representation, we probably would have more underrepresented patients, I would say, compared to what's in the sample. Uh, as you can see for the Duke cohort, we have a difference in at least the demographics compared to some of the other Procornet sites. If you think about women and um, some of our underrepresented populations. If you look at the mean age, we're probably a little younger. Unfortunately, the age of onset of atrial fibrillation and the cardiovascular outcomes in the Southeast United States still are fairly poor, despite our best efforts. The CHADS VAS score was four versus three, uh, six or 7% had prior bleeding, 22% had a creatinine clearance less than 45, 50% at our place and 37% at other places were still on aspirin. And the five-year mortality with somebody with atrial fibrillation was 35%. You see somebody with atrial fibrillation, there's a one in three chance in the next five years that patient's gonna pass away. Yet one of the strongest things you can do is anticoagulate the patient. So how do we do on that? Overall, 43% of patients across all those health systems are still untreated. This is as of 2020, 2021, and not because of COVID. This was longstanding data. If you look 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, if I just look at the rates, you know what the DOAC use did is it took away patients we were treating with warfarin. It didn't really seem to do anything for these patients we were scared to treat. In fact, half of the patients with atrial fibrillation were still not treating. Whether they need an appendage occlusion or they need another therapy, I don't know. But if I just look at the population of effect we could have, we transitioned warfarin for a newer therapy that is better, but we didn't take these untreated patients who might've been at higher bleeding risk or stroke risk or other things and say, hey, wait, this therapy should work towards them. That's across the United States at fairly large centers. And I think it's reproducible. What did the people that get these therapies look like? I mean, we can go through this. I won't spend a ton of time, but it just shows you that these patients were, fewer of them were on, um, few of them have, they're from different regions for sure, but there's less chronic atrial fibrillation in the untreated. There's maybe prior hemorrhagic stroke, so that makes sense. GI bleeding, uh, dementia, cancer, some of those things make sense. Unfortunately, there are other things that are so shouldn't make sense, like patient demographics, um, region, those things shouldn't affect it. And so more chronic atrial fibrillation treated and an opportunity to do even better. Well, a lot of people say, well, Manesh, it's their Chad's vast. Well, you know, if I look at the, the, the NOAC and the untreated Chad's vasks, they look identical. Doesn't mean there's not other things about that patient that I can't identify in a chart, right? Because I'm not in that clinic room with that 71-year-old lady who's falling in a family saying, we don't want a DOAC, so I get it. I'm just saying there's an opportunity to say, how do we engage and educate to say what should be treatment, whichever drug you're choosing at the right dose to get that patient treated. And if I think about organizational metrics that'll come from a population perspective, people are gonna say, is there a way that you can tell me that these therapies aren't going to your patients when they could? You probably saw Biden just released the 10 drugs they're gonna negotiate prices on. 
three or four of them are in these categories, right? And I'll tell you why I think in a second, maybe in the question and answer. But one of the things to think about is that these are therapies that clearly work. And I don't know that, that the pricing is that bad, but certainly we should negotiate, but we should certainly be talking about pricing goes down if we use more. There's other metrics we should be thinking about on who needs the therapy. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone needs it, but I'm almost certain 43% shouldn't be untreated. Some said, okay, Manesh, what about the Hasblitz score? So that was the Chad's Vats. Maybe they're at high bleeding risk. You don't have these other scores. So here's the Hasblitz score. No X, untreated again, look really similar. In fact, the warfarin has lower bleeding risk potentially, but it gives you the same sense. And then people have said, well, this is an interesting analysis that Dr. Pacini and our team did with one of our resident educators and fellows. Um, so how does left atrial appendage look against warfarin? How does left atrial appendage look against DOAC when we do a decision analysis and look at all the trial data and we think about the probability of where you should get a DOAC or not? And you can see that if I just use the bleeding risk, because people who are using left atrial appendage occlusion are worried about patients' bleeding risk. If they're on warfarin, left atrial appendage looks much better because there's a lot of place where patients might have a higher bleeding risk. If they're on DOAC, it gets towards a higher left atrial appendage need when the has blood towards higher. So it's going to be a smaller population on DOACs that might be good candidates for this device. So I've talked a lot about factor 10 for about 10 minutes. I'm going to talk about factor 11 and then where's the world going in cardiovascular and let you ask questions. So factor 10, so as my fellows or even I said, so isn't factor 11 just upstream? Like, why is it better guys? What's going to be better than factor 11? I know, you know, it's, 10 and 11 and two and seven. So what, what's the story? So let me just take a moment to take you back to the cartoon of how we think about anticoagulation and make sure we're all on the same page. I would say normal physiology, it's important to remember what normal physiology is in the coronary artery, in the venous bed, wherever it is. We constantly have this thing going on where we could get a cut and we have to stop bleeding or where there's a little plaque and we don't want to clot. So there's a constant thing between normal hemostasis. That's where this left side of the diagram is, which is there's some sort of break to the endothelial wall, tissue factors activated, 10A gets activated and makes thrombin happen. Secondary amplification, so this is important. Once that first thing happens through contact, that secondary amplification of thrombin happens through this contact pathway that's triggered by factor 11. And that leads to this burst. And if that burst goes out of control, then you get the thing on the right, a pathologic thrombus that is gets harder to treat it. So one way of thinking about it is the way usual thrombosis happens is it happens through 10A. And then the way usual scaling of that thrombosis happens is through factor 11. So at least the idea was with DOACs that look, it will significantly get to a more clean point compared to vitamin K antagonists and prevent that actual thought or thrombus that could be happening. But you can imagine when that happens, you prevent that thrombus, that's great but you can also potentially have some of the beneficial effects of clotting to stop damaged vessels or bleeding, mucosal bleeding still happen. So the idea with factor 11 was if you inhibit factor 11, you might still have that first burst of thrombin that prevents at least some of that natural coagulation, but doesn't lead to that large thrombus. So that's the concept. We allow tissue factor to produce thrombin. That's the concept. Now, why would we have that concept? Why do we think that should be matters? So. The first interesting analysis from UK Biobank and others was to say, there are people who genetically don't have factor 11. When we look at people that don't genetically have factor 11, it looks like they live a little longer and they have less venous thromboembolism, less stroke. Their MI rate looks about the same, but maybe a little bit less. So patients with a factor 11 genetic deficiency seem to be protected from some of these things. But having a genetic deficiency versus giving a drug are very different. I get it, but it's at least the thought process to start. So what are the clinical data with these therapies? So the first data, I won't go through all of these trials, but the first one was an antisense oligonucleotide to prevent venous thrombosis and said, yeah, it looks like when we give this compared to anoxaparin at the day of surgery, we can pre prevent a venous clot. The next is to do it in, thrombo, uh, in total knee uh, with an antibody, which has been published in the New England Journal. I'll, I'll show you some of these. A small molecule called milvexian is uh, also being used. Uh, this study actually, I think importantly, looked across multiple doses for any bleeding on patients undergoing a total knee replacement, and then looked for any event. Um, and the events included clot, both with ultrasound or an actual DVT. And you can see that compared to anoxaparin on the far right, as you escalated doses, you reduced clot. But when I look on the left, compared to anoxaparin, 
some of those escalating doses didn't really have a lot of difference in bleeding. So they could reduce clot with similar rates of bleeding in patients with total knee. I was involved with John Piccini and others again in something called the Pacific AF program. It was actually a program across three studies. So we said, how would we do better than we did last time? Instead of just studying people with venous thromboembolism, we said, why not study patients actually with atrial fibrillation in phase two? Do we learn something with patients with atrial fibrillation to go to phase three? And then instead of just learning it in AFib, should we also study stroke and should we also study MI? So the Pacific program had three phase three studies looking at another drug, drug called asindexian, a factor 11 inhibitor at two doses. And now we said in AFib, why not go against the drug everybody thinks bleeds less, a Pixban. Whether it's right or wrong, the world thinks a Pixban bleeds less. So let's study the big dog. Because if you really want to be better, you got to at least make sure that you're better than the drug that people are saying bleeds least. I think it's a lot about the patient rather than the drug, but this is the one that's probably going to be felt to be less. So we said, let's do that. A Pixaban twice daily based on package insert. So patients with a chads vast score of three or four, and they were evaluated. And it's a three-month study, right? Because you have to do a large study to see if you can reduce stroke. We're looking at bleeding as the primary outcome to say, do these drugs bleed less than a Pixaban? And then is there any signal of stroke? So the first thing we wanted to do is say, does factor 11 actually get inhibited? So here's the asindexian dosing, peak and trough, and you can see that the activity assay and assay to see if it's actually occurring at both 20 milligrams, but even at 50 milligrams, we have over 97%, almost 100% inhibition of factor 11. And then this is important. We presented these at ACC last year and published them. I'll show them to you. No ISTH major bleeding in any treatment arm, but, there, but then all the other bleeding, um, you know, minor bleeding, all bleeding, clinically relevant, minor bleeding, all of that bleeding is included. And you can see compared to Pixaban, small numbers, but asindexine at 50 milligrams and 20 milligrams looks to have much less bleeding, at least 30 to 50% less bleeding than a Pixaban. When we looked at stroke or systemic embolism, small numbers, we didn't expect to be a difference numerically very similar, have to do the larger trial. So like a lot of studies, it was a phase two study, but we're now studying it in phase three. I'll show you that in a second. And this was published in Lancet. And we said, we think this is an opportunity to better study patients. But this time we did something else different. We said, before we study this, start the study, why not go to patients and do a patient preference study? So we've done a thousand patient preference study where we've gone to patients in clinics, through the web, diverse population across the United States. We're now doing it in some of Europe where they, for a small Amazon gift certificate, fill out a 30-minute survey saying, if you had this much bleeding, would, would you prefer this event, this event, this event? So we spend time making them understand, what's the stroke look like that's disabling? You're at home, you need to have help, family has to come in, you can or cannot go to the bathroom. We go through an educational system and say, that's what a stroke looks like. What's a major bleed look like where you go to the hospital, you get transfusion or not, you need a procedure. So they then rank these things and go through that. So we now have, instead of us saying, what's the net clinical benefit, or you saying, what's the net clinical benefit, we have a whole cadre of patients that are telling us. And early data, and it's not gonna surprise you, is they care a lot about bleeding. They don't know the difference between what the event is, just just know if I have to go to the hospital, I have to be in the hospital, I have to have this stuff done to me, I don't like that. I wanna be home, I wanna be without those things. So this is the randomized trial, 18,000 patients with one of the two therapies of Pixaban or not. Fairly large, simple study looking for stroke and systemic embolism, primary endpoint being both stroke and then systemic embolism and also bleeding, and we'll see net clinical benefit. So factor 11 is emerging. I think we aim to enroll patients. I think it's important to learn the lessons from the past and it hopefully help broad thrombotic endpoints to get to patient-specific therapies. For five minutes, I'll talk about the next 10 years in cardiovascular care. I'm not sure it's the next 10 years. This is just my opinions. You can take them for what you will. But I think about how can we improve the health of our communities? You just heard me tell a 30 minute story about anticoagulation where we are and how long it takes from discovering a molecule to having somebody actually get it to actually having patients get better. And the disparities and the barriers are significant. And I think about it from the Duke Hart perspective. I think about it from George Hart. I think about how do we as a, as a community make our patients, especially in the Southeast, do better. So let me start with this. This is an average family, at least in North Carolina, around the country, they have spent six, the family of four, it's an internet made up family. It's not an actual person or family, but let's say it's a family of four. Their income is $68,000. Do you know how much they spend on healthcare? $17,545. So we can't keep doing what we're doing without, I just spent a lot of time talking about expensive new medicines. We can't keep doing what we're doing unless we get to more effective, valuable care. Now, what does that mean for this patient group? Let me show you the map of North Carolina. I'm gonna use one thing, I'm a vascular doctor. This is the amputation map of the United States. 
So uh, Skylar Jones and I published this. Um, unfortunately, there's geographic distribution. If you get an amputation, toe, midfoot, or higher in the United States and you're in Medicare, the chance you pass away next year is 48%. So we see an ulcer on a patient in clinic. We see an ulcer on a patient in the hospital. What are we doing? How are we sounding the bell? What are we doing to do that? That's one example. I could put diabetes up there. I could put stroke up there. What's that going to be? And how are we in cardiology going to change? This is our map in North Carolina. You can see it's even county to county. We even know that the, unfortunately, because of not just county and access to care, it's actually even potentially things like renal dysfunction, um, population care access, a variety of barriers and biases that could be. So we partnered with Mariah Param up there in Henderson to put a wound care clinic from our center, say, what are the networks and places where we can meet patients where they are to actually get better at what our care should be? So I think they're gonna be two big things. They're almost, it sounds like they're opposite, but they're gonna to have to come together. I'll call it innovation and personalization as a core differentiator and the driver of value for people with cardiovascular disease. The best things in the world either save you time or are more specific for you. When a patient comes to clinic, they don't wanna know what rocket showed or Aristotle showed. They wanna know, Dr. Patel, what do I need? And why do I need it versus somebody else? And what can I tell them that's specific about them? I mean, even though we did those studies, we're still talking about Chad's fast. It seems like we should be way more specific about that 71-year-old lady I showed you at the start of clinic. How much is she moving? Is, is there any data on her falls? How much does she fill her medications? How much does this affect her price points for all of her drugs? But could I give her a shot that would last six months that would anticoagulate her? Could I close off the atrial appendage one and done? And does it, is that price point right? Those are important conversations. What if we could innovate ways we do that? And then how's the system going to handle the cost and how do we get to all the patients that need it? So let me show you the innovation side. You guys probably know about this. This is CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing therapy for amyloid cardiomyopathy. So in cardiology, we live in the world of, oh, we're gonna treat disease. I tell our patient, we, we stent somebody, our fellows love to say, oh, we fixed that. I go, we didn't really fix that. We, we treated that. It, it's a chronic process. Maybe that lesion's not gonna cause a problem, but there's many, many more, right? So amyloid's life-threatening. It's a misfolded protein, as you all know, that goes to the brain, heart, and nerves. It's a peripheral neuropathy, cardiomyopathy, others. This description is the first gene editing. And now we and you and others might be participating in phase three studies to actually start thinking about finding patients where they could get a shot to gene edit, gene edit whether they have amyloid cardiomyopathy. It's a few infusions and then it would be the rest of their lives and we'd be following them. We have a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy clinic. I'm sure you all do. Are we checking the genetics of all those patients? Amyloid cardiomyopathy affects disproportionately underrepresented patients in the Southeast United States. We have an ongoing echo imaging AI project to look through all our echoes to say which ones look like patients with amyloid so that we could identify those patients. Amyloid's the, one of many cardiomyopathies that's actually gonna have a gene target. But if I can't convince people to take a statin, how am I gonna let, get, get them to give me the opportunity to gene edit for amyloid cardiomyopathy? If I can't explain AFib, how am I gonna explain amyloid cardiomyopathy? How do I build that trust? What about in nature last week, they presented from SEC and others presented from Verve, the first in primate analysis of PCSK9 gene editing, a one and done shot that changes your PCSK9 gene so that in primates, non-human primates out to one and a half years, out to one year, LDL stays below 30. If I have a shot that takes familial hypercholesterolemia and says for your whole life, I can give you a shot that changes your genetics and changes your cholesterol metabolism, how much will that cost? And how do I get the trust to do that? And what does that look like? That sounds far off, but the first in man papers and others will be coming out later this year. We're starting our genetics clinic. We're, we've had a genetics clinic. We're starting our cardiomyopathy clinic to say, and I don't know that much about the genetics of these things. I'm gonna to have to learn and say, how do we get there, right? But the first thing is to get the patients to start to tell them, it's not just about you, it's about the community. And it matters a lot. How many people come in with an aortic dissection that don't have a known aortopathy? And how many of them are getting a genetic analysis? And then what are we doing for their families? What about other parts of heart failure? This is a story of one of our fellows who's now a faculty member, Marat. He came to me when he was a fellow and he said, I think we got heart failure wrong. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I think all the fluid's in your belly. You don't really get that much weight. I said, okay, so what would we do to try that? He goes, if I get here, will you help me do the study? I was a cath lab director at the time. I said, what would we do? I wanna put an IJ in, have people exercise to see if their wedge goes up. Then I wanna turn them over and inhibit the nerve in their back that causes that with lidocaine. I said, that sounds crazy. 
but if you come here, I'll help you do it. And so he, he decided to come, we did it. And the first time he brought this patient, he put the swan in, wedge was like, exercise wedge went up to 20, turned him over, injected lidocaine into her back, wedge went down to 10. I said, ah, it's luck, do it again. Six, seven times more, there's some patients that responded, some don't, but exercise right heart physiology for our patients with diastolic dysfunction and patients that are obese has turned out to be an interesting opportunity for us. So we showed that there was probably an effect. He published this, got a young investigator award. We actually tried to get the IND and do hold the IND for Botox to think about injecting the back nerve for that, for patients to say, and then we're working with a company, as you can see, I'm doing a splank link denervation. So you can go through the azagus now and denervate that nerve. And there's a company that's about to do a phase three study. Heart failure patients aren't all the same. Some have physiologic drivers, some have other drivers, some have genetic drivers. The ability to get better about that for us is gonna be important. For our cath lab to be able to start taking care of our EP labs to take care of heart failure with different procedures will be important, specifically if we can figure out ways to find those patients. How many patients do we see in our clinics that are heavy and short of breath? And we say it's diastolic dysfunction versus your lungs. Now I do know, you know, Ozempic or other sort of, let's say, semaglutide, other weight loss therapies are coming, but I think these are going to be important. I'll just say last one for us on innovating transplant care. This is Jacob Schroeder, one of our cardiothoracic surgeons. This is a picture of him showing a transplant patient the heart he's about to get. We have started doing trials with transmedics where the transplanted heart gets put on the rig. It's getting oxygenated. It allows you to take longer times to get the patient the heart. You can go from longer distances. So the team has got the heart there. They're about to go in the arm. He's showing the patient, this is the one we're going to put in you because we have the ability to get the heart from and keep the heart instead of cold perfusion. And then we've done randomized trials, as you saw probably in the New England Journal on transplantation outcomes after circulatory death. So the idea being, if families agree, after the patient passes away, immediate resuscitation, heart gets put onto the circulation device, the device then helps get the patients that might increase the donor pool for patients that have an unmet need. This is our current network. We like to partner across the Southeast. We'd love to partner with you guys and think about how we take care of these patients that do poorly. So how do we get to the future of our heart? I think it's gonna be integration, collaboration, and innovation. I'll stop and let you guys ask me questions, but I think we're evolving to personalized therapies. We're gonna have infusions. Today we have inclycerin, which you can get twice a year if you meet the criteria to get your LDL down. But I think we can collaborate in clinical care, education, and clinical research. I'll just start with the last thing, which is always important. The days are long and the years are short. I say this to our fellows because the days are long. We're doing a lot of great work. Enjoy the mission, the people you're touching every day. Recognize in cardiovascular disease, you still have the largest impact on morbidity and mortality worldwide. You have a career that will make a difference to the community. So I appreciate the opportunity to look forward to questions. Chat, or I guess you can do um, web questions too, right? Yes, there will be. Wow. All right. So what a treat. What an amazing whirlwind. Yeah. Um, I, I will actually see if we have any questions from the audience. Um, I know our fellows are all curious and have a lot of great thoughts going through your minds about whether it's DOAX or bleeding or kind of some of the more general topics you touched on. Um, okay. Well, oh, good. Dr. Ahn. Hey, Manesh, great talk. Yeah. Um, quick question. I was just struck on the slide you showed about, like, still, um, there are about 40% of patients in the population out there that are high risk for stroke, um, not being treated with adequate anticoagulation therapies. Um, first question was, I mean, are, were those patients, some of those patients, did they end up getting a left atrial appendage occlusion device? Um, were they truly patients not receiving any anticoagulation therapy for stroke prevention? And then two, what, I guess, what measures are you guys doing to kind of identify these patients to kind of get them on appropriate therapy? Thanks, June. Great question. A small percentage probably got a left atrial appendage occlusion, but very small. And I say very small just because if I think about the penetrance of left atrial appendage occlusion, even though it's going up, compared to that 244,000 patients at those seven centers, 43% of that is still thousands upon thousands of patients, and the rates of left atrial appendage is low. Now, why is that? Um, at our institution, my EP colleagues, Dr. Pacini and others say, our general cardiologists don't believe in it as much as our EPs do. And I, and I would say, I think we believe in it, but we're trying to get to a, a group behavior of saying who needs it, which one meets no criteria for the others. The second thing is, most of these patients may not be seen by cardiologists, just to be very frank. Some are, but a lot are seen in primary care. So broadly, I think our opportunity is, and part of why I'm doing this job, 
is it's really great to do the trials where you say, hey, this thing works, but it's pretty sobering to look 10 years later and realize no one's using. And so what I would say is we want to become a first mile to last mile organization. And that means how do we go from saying, yes, you have AFib to continuing to identify you have AFib and your rate's not changing, your stroke's going up. And it's going to take more than that 20 minute conversation in clinic to get that person anticoagulated. And I may be the person to start it, but there may need to be a variety of things to do that. So just like we've taken, I'll call it lipids out of some of the hands of broad populations, I think population health management for AFib and NOACs is going to be important. And so we're, we're working through that at our institution to say, how do we get broad groups? Because you're busy in clinic, I'm busy in clinic. You, you, let's say you want to see the person where an atrial appendage occlusion is actually being referred for. And so there's got to be a bunch of stuff we do to make sure that patient gets to you. But the other thousand patients that should be anticoagulated probably also need somebody else working on that. Yeah, and that, that was really a fabulous question. It really kind of ties into the systems of care. Um, and actually, I, I loved how you kicked off your talk with the patient presentation, that 71-year-old, the family. I mean, those things we deal with every day. And then the pressures that are on people in 15 minutes to come in, see the patient, build the relationships, make those assessments. Um, and it's almost daunting to think how, how much the gap is between what the needs are, what potential opportunities and where we are today. So I guess one question that relates to that in terms of systems of care is, you know, how can um, technology help us in that regard? Or, or is the answer more human resources? Do the patients need to be seen by a coordinator or facilitator or someone? So is it technology? Is it people? And then how do you fit that into the temporal care of the patients? It's a, the biggest question in most of medicine right now. I was saying last night at dinner, I think most of, most of healthcare and certainly cardiovascular care is going to get disrupted by a variety of things and how we spend our time. Most of our clinicians at our institution, I'm sure it's your institution, are spending their time on not what I'll call top of, top of ability work. They're spending their time documenting and answering questions, doing things that I think would free them up to have more time. So what's the most critical thing I could do at our institution or I'd say in cardiovascular care? Figure out a way where our clinicians, and I mean broadly, not just doctors, clinicians have more time to spend with patients. That's what they care about. That's what each group cares about. But we have a variety of things pulling them to do a lot of other stuff. And I actually think that's going to get disrupted quickly. And I think it's going to get disrupted in the last, next five years. I, I told these guys I've gone through the seven stages of, of grief to realization around artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. I think the tools coming in healthcare are first going to be driven at helping us discuss results with patients, discuss findings, and come in what I'll call a trusted way to say, here's information for you. I think it's going to also help us as an organization get faster to getting information through the system in a reliable way. If I could do one thing, I said last time for our clinicians, if I could magically give a scribe to everyone that took away some of that note-taking issues, I would, I would have won the things that they care the most about because it makes their lives easier and lets them spend more time doing stuff with their patients. Yeah, I, and I think it's, it's interesting. So talk to us a little more about that, right? So, you know, we talked a little bit about the current AI platforms um, because, right, we all hear about it, um, whether it's ChatGPT or yeah. um, DeepMind and what their investments are in healthcare. I think you talked last night about sort of an interaction with Epic to try to really bring that to the front lines. Yeah, I think, I think it's... it's, it's uh... You know, it, it's everybody feels like it's a gold mine and these kinds of things. Just make sure everybody's level set. My talk wasn't about it, but you remembering that most of the systems, chat, GPT or others, are large language models. So they trained on words and all the versions of words, and they live in a lot of different computer spaces. So they can learn at an exponential way to learn language. I sort of made it akin last night to a child who really knows great vocabulary, but doesn't know context, right? right? So it can say a lot of stuff, but when you read it, you go, that all makes sense, but I'm not sure if that's right for this patient. But that's kind of what we're going to evolve and it'll quickly learn. And what I think it's going to do in healthcare. Um, so Microsoft has a large investment. Google has a large investment. And state schools in the United States, a few universities have incorporated into Epic. There's ongoing inbox work with some of these tools. I think the results tab and the note parts of the tabs are going to get affected pretty quickly. I told them yesterday in clinic, I spent half an hour with a patient who showed up, unfortunately late. We should have looked at her chart to say she's always late. Move her appointment up. So she comes middle of the clinic. And then when she comes to say she wants these results talked about, have given her some information about those results in a way that I could have been more patient friendly. And I, that's just an example right. of one little thing that would have changed my morning when I'm trying to get the flight to get down here, but also would have told me 
that she's going to have a better experience. She's coming to say, I'm moving and do, is my heart okay? What about that stent? What about this stress test? I took the echo report and put it in Google and what does diastolic dysfunction mean, right? So all of that that's happening, we have to own and take control of before something else does. And so that's where I think we're going to have the biggest opportunity. Yeah. So as we wrap up, let's go back to your patient yeah. that you presented, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know if that was the recent patient or an older one. What did you end up doing and what were the conversations that- So creatinine clearance, I told you was 43. Yeah. We actually had a conversation about anticoagulation devices, other things. And the first question most of them asked, can I just be on an aspirin? And so, you know, those are real questions. So first just said, you know, in people over 80 in the British Heart Foundation trial, you actually bled more with aspirin than warfarin. Not talked a lot about, but aspirin's not without bleeding risk. And it had no stroke protection. So I don't think that should be an option. Okay, warfarin, I don't think in her is valuable. So I said, it's really a question of, do you think you can get the DOAC? And the data would say for a 71 year old, you have to have 70 to 80 falls to where your bleeding risk starts to outweigh your stroke risk. So you have to have the- 80 falls a year? Year, year. Wow. Because- there's an entire literature on how much you bleed with a fall and what's the fall like. And like, now is that perfect? No, but she's worried about unsteadiness. The biggest thing she might be worried about is this conversation about what if you, what, what does she want? She actually doesn't want to live longer. She doesn't want to be a burden on her family. Almost everybody in clinic who's a little older with a disease doesn't want to be a burden on their family. So it's a question of how do you get her and the family to say, I think a stroke is more devastating than potentially a bleeding episode. And so if you could prevent a stroke, you're going to be less likely to be a burden on your family. And so we prescribed DOAC after that conversation. And then with regard to the DOACs, I mean, I think you did a fabulous job reviewing very, very complex literature um, with, you know, her EGFR was 41 or 43. Everybody's biased, but I, yeah. I actually use 15 milligrams of Roxaban. A, a lot of my practice would say we want to use two and a half of right. Apixaban. And, yeah. and Granger and I argue about this all the time, but I just sort of said, that's great. I think you could use five BID of Apixaban or 15 of Rivaroxaban. Right. Or you could decide an endox banjos. But those are the two dominant drugs in the right. country right now. I would have liked a 110 dibigatran option, to be honest, because that's interesting here. But I use 15 of Riva, or you could have used 5 BID of a and, and I can see that Suzanne's saying we got to close up. I was, I was hoping you would just say a word about under what case scenario would you consider referring her for left atrial appendage occlusion, uh, given that she's never had a bleed and what was her has blood score? And so yeah, sure. Last thing, the people in my practice and some of them are going to John and others. So if she's quickly deteriorating renal function there, we don't have data. So ESRD patients are a really, or very poor renal function are a good option. People that have had a recent bleed that are unlikely to go back on it. And they're determined they don't want to go back on it. It's usually a very large GI bleed or some other bleed. People that have cancer and cancer thrombosis, I actually am anticoagulating, but some others would say refer them. And then people who um, in some points have, have failed, I'll call it failed DOACs, right? They've had re repeated bleeds, then those are the patients. Well, excellent. Suzanne, how are we doing on time? I mean, I we know have, we all wanna, any- we'll, we'll take one last question here in the audience and then we'll need to wrap it up. Just introduce yourself. Hi, Dr. Patel. I'm Vikram. I'm one of the heart failure and interventional cardiologists here. Oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about duration of AFib. Uh, you mentioned a lot about diagnosing paroxysmal AFib. What amount of AFib is too much AFib? 10 seconds, 30 seconds, two minutes? It's a great um, question. Here's the latest on that. And I'll tell you based on the data, I think that'll be here this year. So, you know, there were these old data that they're not old, but there are some wearable data or implantable data that six minutes of AFib sometimes pretended risk, but, but I'll tell you what my practice right now is. At ESC, we just saw data from a large European group across six centers that looked at atrial arrhythmias, wasn't AFib, but atrial arrhythmias, less than 24 hours, most of them, 10% were more than 24 hours, but less than 24 hours captured a variety of ways of monitoring these patients. And they had a CHADS VASC of four, so high risk patients, and they got a Pixaban or, or they, any DOAC, a Pixaban, Rivaroxaban, whatever, or placebo, and there was no difference in stroke rate. The stroke rate was only 1% at two years and was stopped by DSMB. So I think less than 24 hours of AFib is probably not going to be even in high-risk patients based on that data, but we're going to find out. A trial called Atresia uh, is coming out at um, probably AHA or another meeting later this year. It's, it's, a, it's a randomized trial of a Pixban or placebo in patients with implantable devices that see AFib in at least 24 hours. And so you're going to have a continuous measure of AFib and then a pixaban versus placebo and stroke rate. 
I actually think it's going to be more than you think. We, we know the risk is up, but I think it's probably going to be at least 24 hours at some point. A few hours every six months or a year depends on the patient's risk and tolerability, but it may not be as high risk. So there's a, there's a two by two. How much AFib? How high is the CHADS vast? The higher the CHADS vast, the less I'm going to allow them to be in AFib without getting any coagulated. The lower the CHADS vast, the more I'll tolerate episodes of AFib. Well, great. Well, listen, I, if any of you want to ask a few more questions, I think we'll come down. Um, and then as many of you know, we're going to then head over to the studio and do a short interview so we can capture the essence of some of this. And you can watch both this as well as the interview online. And again, thank you so much for a wonderful talk, Manesh. Thanks for Welcome. having me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.